0: Hey everyone, in this AB Talks with Justin Baldoni, we finally meet, we were supposed to meet physically, we didn't, so we made it happen digitally, and we enjoyed a very good conversation about Justin, his life, masculinity, vulnerability, and so much more. I hope you enjoy it. All right, this noise-canceling shit is actually quite good. Yeah, it's good, right? All right, so um, to start with with a, a bit of background. I guess for anybody watching this, this is the story. I get tagged a lot that Justin, check out Justin, check out Justin. And this is from people in the Arab region. Oh, wow. And I'm like, okay, you know, let me, let me, you know, have a look. And a lot of people are like, because I used to, all the hair is gone now, but I used to have similar, I would say for a very long time. Um, and then uh, I'm like okay let me check and they're like NS, you and him like he's the LA version of your topics and you talk about this and, and I'm like okay let me check now and then YouTube shows me your masculinity video one of your first masculinity videos I think right and I'm like that is such a good topic I need to speak about this also in the Arabic world Mm. And I, I, if, I, if I recall correctly, even in, when we recorded the A.B. Talks special on masculinity, I, I gave credit to you because that's where I got inspired to actually oh, talk wow. about Thank something. You. And I'm like, OK, you know, that is a, a very interesting topic. And then, you know, fast forward, I come to L.A., COVID is still a situation and I'm there for a month and I want to see you and you want to see me and it's just not happening. And then I'm like, you know what, we just need to make it happen, whether it's digitally or in person. Mm. So, yeah.
1: I'm honored to That's be here with you, man. thank you uh, thank you for talking about it. i imagine I imagine it's uh, quite challenging as it is here, but especially in the Arab world to talk about masculinity. so i uh, I applaud you for being willing to get uncomfortable.
0: well it's a, it's a human topic, Justin so uh, it's, it's I guess universal, but you're absolutely right. It's more maybe closed up in our region. But anyways, I know we have a certain amount of time, so I'm gonna kick off with my first important question <laughs> that I always ask my guests, which is, "How are you really doing?"
1: I love that question because um, I always like to ask people how uh, how are their hearts, how are their hearts, how am I how am I really doing? I'm doing. I'm doing better than I think I ever have when I said I was doing good. Because I think for so long, good was just the answer we were told as men we had to give. Good. I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. How you doing? So when we're asked that question, oftentimes we say good, and then we quickly deflect and ask the other person. They say good, and then we move on. Both people leave, never really knowing how the other person is doing. I'm doing uh, better, I say, than when I was doing good is because I, when I was doing good, I didn't know how I was doing because I didn't know how I was feeling. And I'm doing a lot of very deep healing work right now that puts my body, my heart, my feelings in the forefront of my mind, not the back. And, uh, and, uh, and I'm healing. And, I'm doing much better than I ever was when I was doing good. So there's your answer.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, who are you, Justin?
1: I'm, uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Does anybody know who they are? Uh, what are we? Who am I? I'm an amalgamation of all of my trauma responses in the real time uh, as I am coexisting with myself trying to figure out who I am and if i actually believe i am who i thought i was how's that for a riddle it's
0: not bad <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is recently i've come across uh, an alan watts video and even my best friend a few weeks ago was saying how we build the self-image of ourselves that we think this is the persona we need to you know represent in front of the world and you have to you know, man up or act up or be that image that every person has painted of themselves, but is that really you? Or is just something that you think you're supposed to look like?
1: Yeah, I don't even know if it's that we are I don't even think we're building this thing, this image, consciously. I think most of it's unconscious. And I would even push back, not to argue with Alan Watts, but I would push back that the... uh, that what we're building... Um, isn't an image that we think we should be. It's an image that the wounded child inside of us thinks we need to be Hmm. in order to survive.
0: Well, that brings me to my next question. So you just assisted me. How was your childhood?
1: My childhood was awesome and painful and confusing. I... um. I had a really difficult time making friends. I I think I was very socially awkward. I wanted deeply to be accepted and liked. I always had a very hard time with that. So I was bullied a lot. Then when you're bullied in order to survive, you become a bully. Even though you're not really a bully, you're just a wounded, scared kid that just wants to not be beat up. <laughs> and, and you think that respect is earned through power and through dominance. Um, but I was also never really a big kid, so I was I could never really be a bully. So I was just kind of I was just I would just be kind of mean when I was like eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, all the while deeply wanting to be liked. Um, my parents worked a lot. Uh, luckily, they're just they're wonderful people, but definitely have their own flaws. As my kids are going to say, I do as well. And I think for a lot of my childhood, I was very confused because I wanted to be i wanted to be liked and and uh and have friends and yet i really struggled making them and uh and so kind of led me to this kind of deeply wounded sensitive emotional um young boy who never really was good looking i was kind of an ugly duckling All my friends were very good looking and I had to develop kind of a different sense of self than I normally would have if I was kind of out of the womb, right? Like this handsome jock who was in shape and who had all these friends. So I think that's one of the reasons why I've been able to kind of challenge masculinity and the patriarchy because I just never felt like I fit in anyways. Also knowing that the majority of my friends growing up were girls. I had a lot more girlfriends than I did guy friends. I fit in better with girls growing up. I was able to talk about emotions and feelings. I had a higher EQ, if you will. So, um, so yeah, but at the same time, it was also perfect in that it provided me the necessary ingredients, um, the the chemistry, if you will, to become the person I am today and to be exactly where I am today. So it was confusing. It was great. It was terrible. It was all of the things. And I wouldn't, change any of it Hmm.
0: and uh, your relationship with your parents how was that
1: my relationship with my parents was awesome growing up as I get older and I do deeper and deeper work I've actually had to go through a lot of healing with my parents and overcoming resentment Um, questioning why did you guys do that or why didn't you tell me that I had a lot of issues with my dad because I resented my dad for a long time because he never really talked to me about the things he struggled with. But that's also very normal, like what dad does, right? Like what dad actually tells his son his fears and insecurities and his failures. Most dads don't. And yet at the same time, I I went through a lot of resentment around that because I feel like he could have helped me understand what being human meant a lot more if I was able to see him as a human, not a superhuman. If I was able to see his mistakes, maybe I wouldn't have perpetuated them and created my versions of them. If I was able to see his fears, maybe I would have felt okay having my own. If I was able to see his insecurities, maybe I would have been okay with mine. And uh, But that wasn't his fault. He was just doing his best. That's just the way that dads are taught they're supposed to be dads. You don't show your weaknesses, right? I'm sure that's a very Arab thing as well. It's a very masculine thing. We don't show our weaknesses because, our, because how can we be powerful and have weaknesses, right? The irony is that's really what power is.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, you, you mentioned flaw, flaws that, you know, all parents have them, including us. Um, what is the flaw in your parents that you wish you could have changed?
1: I, well, the the big one I hit on just now was the flaw that um, they weren't they were not willing to to share their deepest fears and insecurities either with I think the outside world <clears throat> or with us. Um, so, you know, the, the, I think there's a dif- there's a difference between I write about this in my book Man Enough. There's a difference between sensitivity and being emotional and vulnerability. And my parents were very sensitive and they were very emotional. We grew up in a family that felt a lot, cried, (laughs) got mad. Like we showed those parts of ourselves, but vulnerability wasn't showed in our house. And vulnerability is the, is the admission and confession and sharing of our deepest seeded fears and insecurities, our failures, the things we're not proud of, the mistakes that we've made, um, whether we have money or not, whether we are struggling in our work, whether we made a mistake in business, whether the parents are going through a tough time, whatever those things are, those things were never shared with me. And I think I consider that a flaw Because when you don't share those things, you really deprive your kids and your family and your friends of getting to know who you really are. So at 37 years old now, I'm on my journey with my parents to actually find out who the hell they really are. They showed me who they wanted um, me to see growing up. They showed me the versions of themselves they wanted me to see. And now I'm trying to figure out, well, who are they really? And in figuring out who they really are, I'm able to actually see so much of who I have created as this persona that is Justin Baldoni.
0: Hmm. And now, um, from the, the bit that I know about you, I try not to get uh, dive too much into a person on the research side, just so that I don't have any bias. But it was very evident the role that your father played uh, in your journey but i didn't uh, i wanted to know more about your mother what was her yeah. role in justin's journey i didn't see much of that so i'm, I'm curious
1: yeah my my you know I, for me so much of masculinity is learned from fathers and brothers and uncles and grandparents and male figures right for better or for worse generally for worse that's how we learn about what it means to be a man and that's really why this this section of my journey was focused on my father My mother, my mother was the spiritual backbone of the family, if you will. She's, she's the reason I have faith, if you will. Um, So I was, I was taught the faith really from her and, and yet at the same time, my mom, like so many other women who were raised in the fifties and sixties has her own versions of internalized misogyny that she's been dealing with her whole life, you know, whether it's knowingly put the, or would not knowingly put the pressure of finances on my father, right? Let him kind of take care of everything because that's what her dad did. Those types of things, which also created the same similar environment that I was, that I was raised in this idea that, um, you know, my mom oftentimes stayed home with me and the kids. My dad was out working, but with that, You know, my mom, I think my mom struggled a lot with, with the fact that my dad was working so much and yet they never had the conversations about why. Um, Something my wife and I actually have been having some amazing conversations around this idea of like gender norms and patriarchy and how this all works and, and the, the roles we kind of just assign to each other. And my mom you know, spent a lot of time with me and my sister. And my dad was on a plane, you know, twice a week, gone a lot. And, um, and I think at times we were too much for her. And at other times it was exactly what we needed because she was more of the disciplinarian. And my dad was more of the, like, he's gone two or three days a week. So we get what we want when he comes home. And we kind of knew the roles growing up when you're kids, you know, like, ask dad for this, make sure mom doesn't know, <laughs> right? And mom in some ways had to take on a little bit more of that disciplinary uh, patriarchal figure role while he was gone, which I know was hard for her. But she's a deeply emotional, sensitive, loving woman. She's also crazy. She's a feng shui master and she's into biogeometry and a lot of these uh, ancient Eastern modalities. Um. <laughs> So uh I grew up it, I mean, you can imagine this, uh you know, she focused heavily on intuition. So I, I believe I owe my intuition to my mom, the fact that as a man I that's one of the strengths I rely the most on. And she would she would tell me things growing up like <laughs> I wasn't able to lie to her because she could see she used to tell me she could see green stuff coming out of my head when I lied. <laughs> like my aura would change. Like she would she would pull all that stuff on me and then she'd start asking me questions if I would, you know, and she'd do muscle testing on me. You know what muscle testing is? It's kind of oh. so muscle testing is basically where someone asks you a question and you say yes or no, and when you say yes, they push your arm down and basically if you're lying, your arm goes down. If you, if you're not, your arm you're basically your body knows when you're telling the truth or not. So mm-hmm. it always start with like, um, "Is the sky blue?" Yes, great. Is now she would say, "Now say no, no," and my arm would go down, and I'd be like, "God damn it, mom!" <laughs> so uh, so I had to learn. So this is my relationship with my mom is I had to learn how to change my level of strength when she asked me the question. So when I was lying. I would be stronger and when I was telling the truth, I would be weaker so that she had no clue whether I was lying or not. So she would always, uh, she'd do those types of things. But she's a, she's a deeply spiritual, hilarious, uh, sensitive, metaphysical woman. Um, and, uh, and if it were not for her, I definitely wouldn't have that, that deeply spiritual part of
0: me. Okay, um, I'm gonna go to a topic that's very important for you. Um, and it is the redefining of masculinity. Why is it so important to redefine masculinity?
1: The undefining. So just, I'll correct you a little bit there in that, for me, it's the undefining of masculinity. At first, I thought it was the redefining. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that that's what we needed, was to redefine masculinity. But the reason I called my book Man Enough Undefining My Masculinity was because... I realized the redefining of it would perpetuate the exact same problem. The problem isn't the definition. The problem is that someone has decided what it means to be a man. Who was the person? What did he look like? Was it a bunch of men? Were they all the same type of men? Because what it seems to be the case is that the men who decided what being a man looked like all seemed to be the same type of man right? Strength, power, dominance, (laughs) sense of direction, not asking questions, self-assuredness, confidence, you know, bravado, uh, all of these things are what being a man is. Now, of course there are also amazing parts of what being a man is, but when you Google the definition, that's generally what comes up. And what I believe needs to happen is that we need to do away with the definition, the rigid box that, um, creates this culture where we have to fit inside of it in order to be accepted and instead get rid of the box to make room for anybody who identifies as a man, as male, to be allowed to be male without any consequence, to be allowed to be free. Because I think what, what the definition does is it creates restriction it has us in shackles and chains. And we need to be liberated from this definition so that we can all be free. Because the one thing I know about men is that none of us are free. We might be free in this patriarchal idea of what freedom looks like, but we're not free in our hearts. We're not free in our bodies. We're not free to sing and dance around and, and Uh, you know, be ridiculous and move our bodies in funny ways and cry and laugh and scream and have a lot we're not free to do any of that stuff. In fact, we have to be very collected and calm and serious and leveled and make sure that we're balanced because the feminine is what's imbalanced and we need to be balanced so that people can trust us. And we have to be powerful and sure in ourselves and we can't be insecure because God forbid, if we're insecure, then How will we ever be leaders? And all of these ideas have to go because all of them are prescriptions for unhappiness. So that's why I believe we have to undefine it. Redefining it would just be creating a new box and eventually somebody would have to then create a new box and a new box and a new box. And we just got to get rid of the damn box.
0: And the interesting point also is that it goes on both sides of the spectrum. Even femininity is defined. You know, that they can't be warriors or uh, MMA fighters or, and and who said that? But that's,
1: men did, men said it. That's the problem, Mm -hmm. right? Women didn't decide that. And this is the thing about the patriarchy. A patriarchal system constricts both genders. We don't see it that way. So we think, oh, men have this and women have their definition, but men created both. (laughs) Men created. I mean, if you go back way back, like the deities, the goddesses were women. We, we worshiped female goddesses as much or more as we did the male. That all eventually changed, right? With the Zeus's of the world. And how did they look like? What did, the, how did we describe them? What were they? Right. But before that, it was, it was the female deities. And, um, and so all of this, like the idea that women can't be warriors, I just think is, I mean, it says who? Says who, exactly. right? And, and, uh, and by the way, why do we then decide that being a warrior is something that is something that somebody should be? I think if anything, if women ruled the world, there probably wouldn't need to be warriors. What are warriors except people that either defend their, their town or village or country from ongoing attacks or people that go to attack other villages or territories to conquer them? This is a very masculine, patriarchal idea of dominance and power, which was created by men. We want to assume more power. We get more power by conquering somebody else, by taking their women, by taking their money, by taking their food and having them then live under us, making them slaves. This is how it started a long time ago versus living in unity and in peace, cohabitating with other cultures and villages, not seeing our, uh, our neighbors as others and otherizing them or as enemies, right? Competing for food or for shelter versus collaborating to solve these problems, living in harmony with the world and with nature and with each other, right? These would be feminine ideals. And yet this is the secret in the future to a world where we could have world peace.
0: It's, uh, it's a very, this topic obviously can go for, for hours and, uh, and of course it's like you said to maintain dominance on the male side you need to back in the day control or maintain women and the beauty or I think one of the most beautiful things today in social media and in connection you get to see so many good examples now of how this woman president is doing better than a male president and this woman minister and this woman CEO and you're like okay. So suddenly, even when I look back, I think all these cartoons we used to watch would position a female in a certain light and a male in a certain light. And it can come down to a repeating topic that's been on my mind recently. And I was, I was telling this to my mother and I'm like, where do we get off as people judging how somebody dresses or does or expresses themselves as if they should be only the way we like them to be? And if they're not, they're an enemy. No, and I think it's as, as simple as I, I like to say this. If I come and say, Justin, you should really try vanilla ice cream. And you're like, bro, I like chocolate. And I'm like, no, 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 vanilla. I'm telling you, it's really nice. And you're like, Anas, I really don't like vanilla. I like chocolate. <laughs> and what, what, both of them can be nice. Why does it have to be what I like has to be enforced on, on you? You can be like, bro, go enjoy your vanilla. Let me enjoy my chocolate and it's fine.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, that vanilla chocolate ice cream idea and debate is the root cause of all this unity in the world. And it really comes from a lack of self, I believe. A lack of self-love and compassion and understanding. When you're full of self, not full of yourself, but when you are full of self, when you have self-compassion, when you've looked at yourself and done healing work, you recognize that somebody else's choices in their life don't actually affect yours. Your, your wanting chocolate or not liking vanilla doesn't mean that my vanilla is any worse. It doesn't mean that I am not good enough because you don't like my flavor. And we don't see it that way, right? It's, that, it's this notion of, for those of us with privilege, equality can feel like oppression. We have to control everybody because our self-worth depends on the external voices, in reality, there's plenty of ice cream for all of us to go around. And Absolutely. sometimes the best ice cream is the ice cream that's mixed. What are flavors except things that are mixed together? So if you think about it, we're just, re- we're just really arguing over things that were already mixed in the first place. And they will be mixed in the future. There is no us or there's no I or you, there's only us, so this whole concept of like us versus them, even of like land and territories, if you go back long long enough, it was all shared. Nothing was anybody's. This land isn't ours. this is mother nature's. we're sharing it this is a this is a a spitting asteroid like we're not this isn't even ours. this concept of us and and them otherizing. All of it comes down to just deep, deep insecurities. And I believe every one of our insecurities and fears can be traced back to one fear, which is the fear of death. That one day we are going to be nothing. That we are not going to be remembered. That our life will be in vain. But in reality, if you think about it, if you were to live and contemplate on mortality now and go into your fear of dying and of being forgotten, of being irrelevant, of not being enough, then actually you'll recognize that like, wow, wait a second. None of it matters anyways. So I should just allow other people to be happy. Shit, I should be happy. But that only starts with with looking at your life now and recognizing that you have enough just as you are. You are enough just as you are. Happiness starts with contentment. And if my contentment requires you choosing my vanilla ice cream, well, then I'm never going to be content. Because the second... Somebody else chooses a different color ice cream? Doesn't matter how many people like my ice cream. I'm gonna need to go and focus on that because that person's ice cream dictates my happiness and my self-worth.
0: Nice, I like how we remix the ice cream uh, (laughs) comparison. Just gotta bring it back to the ice cream, man. Absolutely. you know, it's, it's, uh, it, when you're talking about borders and, and country, country borders are virtual lines, are imaginary not lines that we just you know place on Earth. If you go back into space, you don't see any of these lines, really. But we just have them. Um, another important topic. Um, With the show, with AB Talks now, a lot of, uh, it it became a thing where a lot of people do cry on the show. And people now, the funny thing is now, especially female guests, when they come on the show, and some of them in the first five minutes, they're like, Anas, you are not going to make me cry. And I'm like, guys, why is crying not celebrated? Why is it such, like, you have to challenge me. And I'm like, darling. Man or woman, you want to cry, you cry. You don't feel like crying, don't cry. Whether it's happy tears or sad tears, why are we so afraid of vulnerability rather than celebrate that that needs courage? To be vulnerable today needs courage. You need to have guts to be vulnerable and say, you know what, this is me and all my colors and I hope you accept me. If you don't accept me, too bad, you know? So I think this is a very topic that you like to tackle also, vulnerability and the courage that comes with it. So what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, it starts with how we're raised. So this whole idea of being afraid to cry or boys don't cry or men don't cry, um, it's, it starts with us as children. And then it starts with our parents who raised us as children. And it's always about how we were raised. And, you know, we know, at least here in the West, that for men and boys, you are taught from an early age that boys don't cry, that you're not allowed to cry because that's something that girls do. And so from the time we can remember, we are pitted against girls and women. We're told that this idea of crying is feminine. And when something is told to a young boy um, like that and, and compared to being a female or being a girl, we're essentially being told and taught that um, being a girl is bad and that being a feminine is weak or being feminine is weak. So when you are, when you are in a position where you're crying, your brain starts to associate those tears with weakness and with femininity. And if you're taught that being feminine is weak, then what you're actually growing up with is that you have this false sense of power over girls and women or Uh, internalized homophobia over gay people, because it's also gay, right? You're either a girl or you're gay. So all this homophobia, all this, this inherent sexism and misogyny starts with when we're kids, when we're boys. Now, there are a lot of reasons why I think that fathers and mothers tell their boys to man up and to stop crying. Most of it has to do with protection. Why? Because they knew growing up what happened to boys who cried. They were bullied and made fun of, and they were weak. And a father who loves his child wants to protect his son from being bullied and policed and beaten up and weak or being called gay or a sissy or soft or all of the things that we do to young boys as we do whatever we can to make them robots, emotionless, insensitive, impenetrable robots. Because so that's really what we do. That's what schools are. We're just little factories where we're creating robots. And if the teachers don't do it and the school system doesn't do it, then you can be sure that other boys will do it. So then you grow up and you know that when those feelings come up, you have to bury them. You have to push them down because your life depends on it. Because when you were growing up, it was, it was life or death. If you cried, you, everybody knew that you were a pussy. Everybody knew that you were gay. And because you were taught to hate those things, those things were less than, you were then taught to hate that part of yourself. So if you do cry, there's a hatred that almost comes up where you're like, no, no, I got to push it down. I got to push it down. I got to I got to survive. It's like fight or flight. When in reality, we know, thanks to science and research, that tears actually contain stress hormones. And when you are young, when you are a child, when you're a baby, you are constantly processing traumatic experiences every hour, every minute of the day, because you don't have context yet. And as a child, you're processing life. And something as simple as you calling for Dada and daddy not being there is traumatic. Your, Your brain doesn't understand it yet. Your brain doesn't understand that daddy's in the other room. But for that split second, when you call for Dada and he's not there, you feel abandoned. Your brain is processing abandonment. And so you cry because our bodies are intelligent. So our, our, our tears actually help us release the stress hormones that build up so that they don't create toxicity in our bodies. So as children, when we cry, we're actually cleansing our bodies. They found that these stress hormones, when not let out, create toxicity and end up leading to health problems, all kinds of health problems. Cancers, heart disease, stress. Just look at men. Men and women are 99.9% Genetically, biologically the same. But why do men die younger than women? Why do men kill themselves at four times higher rates than women? Why are 99% of all mass shooters men? Why are the majority of prison inmates men? Why is the destruction of the world mostly men? Well, I think it could be as simple as the fact that we have been trained to be robots that are emotionless and we have a... uh, Um, a reservoir of undealt with pain and trauma and sadness in our bodies. And when you have so much of it, like a volcano, it erupts, but it doesn't come out as sadness. It doesn't come out as, as processing of the traumas of the tears that needed to come out when you were two years old and you felt your daddy had abandoned you for 30 seconds. It comes out as rage. It comes out as anger. So all of these things are endemic and that they start in families, influenced by culture. And if we could start to break that cycle, if we could teach our young boys and girls that crying is the most human thing we could do, that crying is good for us, that we should we should stop we should stop trying to to prevent tantrums and, and tell our kids to like get their shit together when they're having these wild tantrums at three, four, five, six, seven years old and instead realize that they're having these wild tantrums, that they're crying because they're processing traumas that to our adult brains don't make any sense because we don't remember what it was like to not have context as children. We have to let these things go. And guess what? As adults, we have to start doing that too. And what I'm learning in my own healing journey is that I so quickly go to anger and rage because that was the only acceptable thing as a man I was ever allowed to feel. UFC, wars, warriors, as you said earlier, right? Violence in movies, TV shows. What do we call the most dominant alpha big bad dude that can kill everybody? We call him a man who earns the respect and the fear of everybody around him. A man that can protect women by killing other men. Like, this is how we view these men. Why? Because they're using their anger and their rage to dominate in the pyramid scheme that is the patriarchy. When in fact, what that man really is is a deeply sensitive person who's had so much trauma and is so misguided and he's, and he's unable to heal from his wounds. So he's built up this robotic persona of power and dominance in order to cope with all the pain that's somewhere buried deep down inside of him. That's what all of us men are doing. So we got to start allowing ourselves to cry. And what I've learned is right on the other side of that anger and rage is a reservoir of sadness, of tears that are just dying to come out, that manifest when they don't come out in injuries in my body, in back pain, in stiffness, in illnesses. That's how it shows up for me in my life when it doesn't come out. So we got to ask ourselves, what are we doing to our children? What are we trying to create? Are we trying to create a generation of robots who only express anger? Are we trying to create a generation of human beings who are healthy and full of themselves?
0: Have you healed Justin?
1: No, I'm healing and I will be healing until the day that I'm no longer breathing on this planet.
0: Mm. Do you like being a father?
1: I love being a father. It's one of the greatest gifts, challenges, and responsibilities, I think, in the the world, being a parent.
0: Mm. And um, what does love mean to you, Justin?
1: There's a quote in the Baha'i writings from Abdul Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. He says that, Love is the magnetic binding force between the planets and the stars. Mm. That's That's a paraphrase. And to me, love is the thing that scientists will never be able to understand because it's the thing that makes the atoms and the molecules move. That is the very thing that creates all life and existence in the universe. So when I think about what Abdul Baha said, and I think about how scientists keep developing these new microscopes that can go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper because they're trying to figure out what's making these things move. How is this working? They'll never figure it out because they're not supposed to because that thing is love and that thing can't be found because it's inside all of us. Love is everything. Love is all there is. I don't believe there is anything that isn't love. I think that there is just places where love is harder to find. Kind of like there's no darkness. There's just an absence of photons. When things are bad, it's just an absence of being able to see the love.
0: I watched um, your uh, pregnancy video. The surprise ha. that you... No, oh, the, you the baby, the,
1: that first baby announcement.
0: <laughs> and you know what's uh, funny, Justin? I teared up watching that. I don't know you. I've never met you. And that video, today I actually watched it earlier. And I start to tear up sitting alone at home, right? And this is how beautiful and powerful what you put together is. It doesn't matter if I've never met you. It doesn't matter if I haven't seen your child i just seeing the beauty of celebration between human beings and love and people happy for you, genuinely happy for you, Justin, and for your wife. It was so gorgeous. It was like, for me, this video represented humanity and how beautiful humanity can be. If we just let our guards a bit down, look at how beautiful it can be.
1: And that's, and I'm so happy to hear that it touched you because the whole the point of it and, the, and why we released it was because I think that we forget how sensitive and empathetic we are as human beings. When we are born out of the womb, uh, Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i writing says, noble I have created thee. Why dost thou abase thyself? Right? Why do you bring yourself down? We, we're all created noble. We're all created with empathy and sensitivity and compassion. This is our default. Imagine a world where everybody felt for everybody else. Well, there could be no destruction or murder or conquering or pillaging because we would feel everything for everybody. But in order to survive, we have to numb ourselves. And the older we get, the further we get from that innate sensitivity and empathy and compassion. And so what these videos do and what you experience is it reminds you that you actually care about somebody besides yourself. which is what we need more of because we're in this I, 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 me, me, me culture. Another Baha'i quote, Abdul Baha says, I, 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 me, me, me. These are the curse words of the future, which is why in the Baha'i writings, it says in the future, the crime itself will be the punishment. Imagine a world where we don't have to punish people because the simple act of committing the crime will be enough. That's how we're born. That's in all of us. I believe it with all my heart but we're socialized to numb. And the more we numb, the more we stop ourselves from feeling, the farther away we get from God and ourselves. So I'm happy, that you, uh, I'm happy that you cried a few tears this morning for somebody you don't even know. I wish we would all do more of that.
0: I was happy for you, man. And for Emily, right?
1: Emily, my wife, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my daughter's six years old now. That video that
0: I made was six and a half years. My, Maya, Maya, is it? Yeah. Yeah, Maya. Beautiful. What's, uh, what's your favorite color? I don't have one. Come on. Something that goes I, 1% more than the rest.
1: You know what's so funny is for a long time, I I crowdsourced a lot of the things that I liked meaning these people liked that music, I liked that music. Oh, this the girl I was with when I was 19 liked this color, oh, I like that color. Um, when you first asked me that question, the first image I had was midnight blue, but that's my wife's favorite color. And what I've recognized and realized is that I don't have to have a favorite. The fact of me needing to have a favorite or needing to, to, to choose a favorite um, is me needing to be like everybody else. Could it be possible that I don't have a favorite color? Could it be? Maybe it is. I don't have a favorite movie. I have movies I love, but I don't have a favorite movie. That's like, how do you have a favorite piece of art? Instead, for me, what I've learned is I have seasons where I have favorite colors. I have seasons where I'm more drawn to certain colors than others. There's times when I'm in a bout of a depression and I think that gray or darker colors that are my favorite, I feel comfortable in them. And then there are seasons when I'm colorful and I love pink or I love light blue. I, I'm, I'm okay and I'm open and I have compassion with myself and that I don't have a favorite color. I don't have a favorite song. I don't have a favorite movie. I'm very open. Um, so currently and I don't need in this to.
0: season, in this season, what's your color? I'm I, I'm liking a lot of
1: yellows right now, um, but that also could be influenced by that you know the color, that's the cover of Man Enough in my book. But yellow is also yellow is also kind of happiness. I think about I think about the sun and yellow. I think that's really sweet.
0: Yeah, um, give me give me three reasons why you said yellow. So happiness is one. I would say more. I would say warmth.
1: I love that. I love the feeling of warmth. Um, I would say happiness, joy feels like yellow to me. And, um, and I, joy is something that I'm, I'm aspiring to accept more of in my life. And also it feels playful. Mm. I feel like yellow is a playful color and part of breaking free. Part of my freedom is being more playful in my
0: life. All right. Favorite animal and three reasons why? Dolphin. Unless the animal changes. Okay. Oh, interesting. I dolphin. don't think I've
1: done dolphin before. Dolphin has been my favorite animal for a long time. Part of that actually though is from my parents because when I was 10 years old, they left for two weeks and they went on a trip swimming with dolphins. So, and I've, I've always had a dream to swim with dolphins because of them. So dolphins are playful animals. So they are they are extremely playful. They are the closest to humans in terms of the way they interact with each other. So they are highly intelligent. Um, they actually are one of the only animals that have sex for recreation, which I find very interesting. Um, <laughs> and and they're intuitive. Dolphins have this strong sense of. S- of intuition, um, and and they're just they're remarkable. They're a remarkable species, which is why when I see in some of these Asian countries these mass killings and executions of dolphins, it actually like it makes me it makes me weep. It like breaks my heart, and like this like this is just unfathomable to me how we could be so destructive to our environment and kill these highly intelligent creatures.
0: So here's the analysis. The color represents Justin, how you see yourself. So he said happy, playful, warm. So that's how you see Justin. The uh, animal is your ideal partner. So very intuitive, <laughs> the recreational part, I'm going to leave it to you. Um, <laughs> um, and you also said um, that they're playful and they're extremely intelligent. Yeah. So it's, a, it's yeah. a usually a very accurate, uh, I've been using it for so long and people are like, hmm, okay, you know, it makes sense. Um, and I then, love it, man. Um, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, it's pretty interesting how certain questions can, you know, can represent so much. My mother always uh, talks about the relationship we have with food and the relationship we have with money are extremely representative of we as individuals and how we see things. So that's, a, anyways, that's another thing because I need to narrow it down,
1: and then tell your mother that both of those things are a hundred percent of the time passed down from families and parents.
0: Absolutely, we're programmed at, a, at a, such a big thing to whether and to break the cycle is usually a minority. Usually, people just you know. But they both represent the
1: both food and money. Represent um, generally the the scarcity. Um, or love model and that both of those things, you either come from a place of scarcity, fear, or love and how you look and approach those things. And it definitely comes down to uh, how that was instilled in you and what needs or not needs are, uh, are showing up in your life. So uh, I for sure agree that food and money uh, are 100,000% um, through how you see the world but they're also a massive trauma response.
0: Oh, big time. Um, Hypothetical question. If you could walk around and see a characteristic above people's head and a scale, like a gauge. So you virtually see above each, each one of us, let's say you choose sense of humor, you can see if it's like zero, one, two, ten. Which characteristic would you choose to see on people's heads?
1: There's two and they're different, Um, but they have the same, they have the same uh, that I would want to see them for the same reasons. Um, I would say the first is healing, Hmm. which is I would want to be able to have a scale, which showed me who has hit rock bottom and been willing to heal. Who's doing the, the hard work of heart work. As I write in my book, who's healing based on who's healing. I know who I will want in my life. I'll know who I can feel safe and vulnerable with, who will not judge me, who will accept me when I'm at my lowest, because healed people heal people. Hurt people hurt people. The other would be a protection mechanism which would be trauma. Um you'd want to know who's experienced the most trauma in your life and their lives. Because even if they haven't healed, you know that there is a place where that person and you can meet and see and accept each other. But you also know whether or not to, um, in the first five minutes of meeting that person, if that trauma scale is all the way to the end or what, um, if they're a safe person for you or not. But heal would be the first one because that healing work is so rare. And I I really think there's only a few types of people in the world. There's people that are taking on their healing and doing the work. There are people that haven't. And there are people that, um, are afraid to, and, uh, and the more we go into that deep work of healing, I think the, uh, the closer we will get to recognizing that we're all one.
0: Very unique answers, Justin. I like, um, so as human beings, we have this, uh, by nature, this intrinsic need to feel seen, visible, valuable uh, it's, it's like a need you need to feel that you're of worth of, of value, whether it's your life or yourself and it starts of course when since you're a child and how you want to show off in front of your parents just for them to say, "Oh good, good boy," or so for Justin today, what is something when you, de- you uh, something that when you do, you feel you're valuable you're of you know you give value or you feel valuable. Um,
1: you know, I do a lot of things that would give me that value to the world, help people serve a lot of, a lot of stuff that the world places that value on that little Justin would be like, wow, you grew up to do that. You grew up to do all of those things. You're doing so good. Like I have a lot of things in my life like that. In fact, I've built my entire life around adding value to other people's lives in a way that then makes me feel as if I'm, I'm doing good in the eyes of God, if you will. But what came to mind is something that was unexpected and that I've been thinking a lot about, which is I love cooking for people because it's a simple act that nobody really ever sees except the person that's there and I put love into it and all I care about is that first bite and and making sure that that first bite is like that they feel loved when they have that first bite. I do that for my, I made, I did that for my wife last night. I spent like 25 minutes It was just really quick, but I like wanted it to have like the right combination of flavors just so she could have like a moment where she felt loved and seen through cooking. And what I love about cooking, it's kind of like those Buddhist monks who spend days and days and days making these gorgeous temples out of sand only to then wipe them away. It's a practice of detachment. It's a practice of giving something and knowing that the act isn't in the thing. It's in the making and the giving of it. It's in the creation of it. And it's very similar to this idea of death. We're giving, 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 and one day we're not going to be giving anymore. And we have to be okay with that. What I love about food is that we know scientifically that the second bite is like 70% less enjoyable than the first. (laughs) And then it just goes on and on and on and on. So you're really essentially spending all this time and putting all this love into making a meal that somebody will eat, taste, have a moment of, digest, and then shit out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like, it's truly an act of service. Mm
0: -hmm. So. Okay. Um, This is something I'm very curious about. Why do you do what you do? Like, why do you even bother? The masculinity, the vulnerability, the book. You can just be in a safe, uh, maybe acting job or whatever you choose and, you know, or a model or whatever you choose, like a default Safety. Why are you troubling yourself and doing all of these things that you don't need to really do? Or do you?
1: The world has not progressed forward by people staying in their comfort zones. Hmm. There is nothing that happens in life, there's no growth that can happen in life that happens in a state of comfort and ease? None. What are growing pains? <laughs> None of this is fun. Um, it's painful to grow. It's uncomfortable to grow. And sure, I could have enjoyed the benefits of my male privilege and had a very, maybe like on the outside, easy life and, not gone deep, but then I wouldn't be happy. I'd be conforming. And if there's something in me that knows something is off, why would I not talk about it with whatever privilege I was given? I mean, the entire purpose of having privilege, privilege people have this misconception of privilege, like it's some bad thing. White privilege is not a bad thing unless you don't use it for good. Have all the white privilege you want, except use the white privilege to talk about all the people who don't have it, right? Male privilege is not a bad thing. So long as you use it, I believe, to fight the patriarchy (laughs) and to bring down a system that doesn't actually benefit you because it's terrible for us. So for me, it just comes down to like, well, I was created. I had this unique set of experiences growing up. My trauma is unique to me. I've been built the way that I've been built. And part of the way that I've been built is that I desire truth in every area of my life and every relationship of my life. And with the most important relationship I have, which is with myself. But once you know that truth, once you're discovering that truth, making the choice to not share it might be one of the greatest sins of all.
0: So I have to. It's selfish. Yeah, it's selfish not to share. Um, What are you afraid of?
1: I'm still afraid of death. I'm still afraid of death because it doesn't make sense to my rational brain. Because it's not supposed to. Mm. The idea that I have thoughts and feelings and exist as a soul but will no longer exist as a body is something my mind, my brain is continually trying to recognize as a problem that it can solve. And I'm on the journey of acceptance to feel it in my body and in my spirit that that's a natural part of life. And the idea that energy can't be created or destroyed gets lost in the brain because my brain tells me I'm more than energy. And finite minds are not supposed to understand the infinite. So, so anything we can't understand, we're inherently afraid of, even though we're curious. That's why I spent the last 10 years making documentaries about people who are dying. It's selfish, but at the same time, it helped a lot of people, including the people that I was with. But it's selfish. I want to understand. And I'm going to have to understand one day eventually. And that's really what it comes down to. That's why I believe we need to be tackling and going into our fears instead of running from them.
0: All right. Um, let's do this nicely and smoothly. Best moment in your life so far?
1: It's a, it's a two-way and three-way tie. Uh, the moment both of my children were born and the moment I married
0: my wife. Worst moment in your life so far?
1: worst moment in my life? I don't think there's a worst. I think there's a scale of traumatic experiences that I'm still processing. But when I think back to the worst moments in my life, it's hard for me to think of them as bad because they are the reason I'm able to go as deep as I'm able to go. Baha'u'llah says in the Baha'i writings that Nothing save that which profiteth them can ever befall my loved ones. So the worst moments in my life actually have benefited me the most. So it's hard for me to like look at that as a binary, as like good or bad. But a lot of um, a lot of very hard moments that actually caused me the most growth.
0: What is the hardest one?
1: I don't have a, unfortunately. I don't have A. I really don't. There's not a moment that I can look back like that was the hardest, that was the toughest. I have moments that challenged me. But there, but my relationship to them, the, the deeper I go into my own healing work, this idea of PTSD, the hardest moment of my life, goes away. I mean, there were moments in was a moment in college I can think of when I was 18 and I was in this relationship and I didn't have any money and I was with this abusive girlfriend. And yeah, that could be one of the hardest moments in my life. But like it wasn't because if I wouldn't have known that I would never have been able to appreciate and know the beauty that is my wife. Abdul Baha says that if it were not for darkness, how could we ever appreciate the
0: light? The contrast is so important in life. Um, Emily in one word. Grounded. Maya in one word. Light. <laughs> nice that you smiled. Maxwell in one word. Sweetness. We say Habibi, habibi is like loved one. So that's the first word that came to me when you said sweet. I'm like Habibi, like my love. Sweetness. I, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I've never met your kids. So you see, it's beautiful to connect. Um, Sam in one word. My dad, Sam oh kind kind sharon in one word deep Hmm. hypothetical if i could take justin's heart and place it in front of you now what would it tell you
1: you are enough
0: since you're afraid of death last two questions since you're afraid of death if you could choose what words you can say before you die what would you choose forgive me why would you say that
1: because all of us need to forgive ourselves and be forgiven I mean, Jesus said it. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why would I be any different? forgive Forgive me for, forgive me for spending my life not thinking. Forgive me for being a zombie. Forgive me for the amount of hours I spent looking at my damn phone when I could have been looking at somebody else in their eyes. There's so many things that every single person needs to be forgiven for, not just from God, but they need to forgive themselves for. Hmm.
0: Last one, Justin, in one word. Healing. Right. It was nice, man. I'm glad we met at least virtually for now. Until Yeah.
1: The next so great. It was so great to talk to you. You're a great interviewer. You had great questions, you. man. I really appreciate it.
0: I appreciate it, man. Good talking to and you. And next time you're Hopefully. in
1: L.A., come out.